Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yesterday, my brother and I set out on a hunting trip. Eager to find a fresh location not far from where our father had recently bagged a buck from the road. Armed with our bows, we headed up a logging road beside First Creek. As the late evening approached, hoping to discover the perfect spot for our tree stands. Our search led us to a steep ridge covered in dense pine trees, offering an ideal shady spot where deer could rest during the day. At the ridge's base, 
A clearing cut through by the road seemed like the perfect spot for moonlit grazing. Excitement surged through us as we realized the potential of the location, and we wasted no time preparing our ambush. But our excitement soon turned to fear as unsettling screams pierced the air. We exchanged fearful glances, desperately trying to figure out the source of the terrifying noise. It was unlike anything we had ever heard before, a chilling blend of a woman's scream with a deeper and louder tone. Anxious and frightened, we slowly backed down the road, our eyes scanning the tree line for any sign of what could be causing such a dreadful commotion. The eerie screams followed us, never drawing closer yet refusing to fade away. There were no crashing sounds of brush to indicate movement, just the haunting echoes that sent shivers down our spines. As we finally reached the main road and turned back towards our camp, the unnerving screams finally ceased. We rushed back to the campsite, with my younger brother half-jokingly suggesting, maybe it was Bigfoot. We briefly discussed the strange occurrence around the campfire, but the other hunters seemed hesitant to share much about the banshee-like sounds we had heard, leading the topic to be dropped quickly. When asked if we ever thought about what a banshee might look like, my brother and I, being seasoned veterans of the Oregon woods, laughed and admitted we had never really considered it. As for hunting in that direction again, my older brother grinned sheepishly and pointed in the opposite direction of First Creek, saying, nah, we've hunted over that way ever since. My dad and I went on a hunting trip in upstate New York, where it's common to see a bear or two. We visited a reserve, explored lakes, and outposts, and overall, it was fun. However, while in one of the towers, we spotted a furry thing about 200 yards away in the trees and bushes. Hunters aren't allowed to shoot off the outpost, so we didn't think much of it at the time. Later, when we set up camp, we heard footsteps around the tent. I didn't pay much attention, assuming it was a deer or a squirrel, and went back to sleep. But it started getting weirder, with heavier and faster circling footsteps. I woke my dad, and we both went outside in our boxers with our guns. However, we couldn't see anything, and the noise stopped. Thinking I was going mental, I apologized to my dad, and we went back to bed. The next day, as we continued our journey, I couldn't shake the feeling of being watched. I felt unsettled, but my dad didn't notice anything off. We set up camp again and saw the hairy thing once more. We watched it for a while until it disappeared, and we went to bed. But an hour or two later, we heard something different, heavier, faster footsteps that sounded like multiple beings. Panic set in, and I woke my dad up. We both grabbed our guns, and my dad went outside, shining his flashlight and yelling to scare off whatever was there. I was terrified and had tears in my eyes. We decided to leave immediately, packed up the tent, and started our hike back to the truck. During the hike, we heard knocking sounds all around us, making us even more anxious. We half-jogged towards the truck, but my dad couldn't run due to a knee injury. At this point, I was on high alert, ready for anything with my gun in hand, fueled by adrenaline. As soon as we saw the truck, a blood-curdling scream pierced the air, making us run even faster. We drove to the nearest ranger outpost and reported the incident. 
The Rangers mentioned similar reports, and my dad briefly described what he saw, a 7 to 8 feet tall creature with a human face and a hairy body. He said there were four of them, but he doesn't like to talk about it often. Sorry for the long story. We were in Wales in 1992 for training exercises that we were to spend the night in the woods on the outskirts of a small town. Then head into town for some R&R. As usual, we were eating field rations and had just broken out onto our sleeping bags for the night, and we heard something large moving throughout the woods. A few of the guys from my platoon grabbed their rifles and went to investigate. A minute or two later, the most awful sound I'd ever heard came from the woods. It sounded like somebody trying to scream while being strangled, maybe 50 yards away at most. It wasn't human nor animal in nature, but it was loud. To this day, I struggle to find the words to describe it. It shook me up. A few minutes later, the guys came back from checking out the woods. They did not have a clue what it was. One guy swore he saw something weird, but he was also pretty shaken up too. We just need to forget about it, and I said, we can't just forget about it. I don't know what it was, but there's a chance it was a person. We need to go make sure. The guy who looked just seemed shaken and pale told me, it was no person, I'm telling you. Whoever it was, they're long gone by now. Well, I'm not just gonna sit here and do nothing, I told them. If you guys are too scared to go back there, then I'll go check it out. At this, a few of the guys who had gone into the woods shook their heads, but most of them just stared at the ground. I'm gonna go back there, I told them. So one of my friends who was with me in the platoon told me he would come with me, even though he did have a lack of enthusiasm. The rest of the platoon was less reluctant, and so we all headed back there, minus a few guys, of course. We were not successful. Nothing was found, but we felt like we weren't alone out there in the wilderness. Anyway, that's my story. Haven't experienced anything else in the military quite like it. I've been a ranger for a while now. I've seen a lot of crazy things, and most of it's classified, and I can't talk about it. I'll tell you about one though. I was driving my patrol car down the highway, and I received a call over the radio that really freaked me out. They had reported that somebody had said their friends were being attacked by something at one of the campsites. I drove over as fast as possible to see what was happening. When I arrived, I saw several cars parked around the campsite where everybody seemed very nervous about everything. The people who were supposed to be camping here weren't anywhere to be found, but they had left behind all their belongings, so it did not seem like they packed up and went home for anything like that. A couple of them were huddled together. They informed me that something very large had attacked them while they were sleeping, and it must have taken one of their friends away. I kept my gun close on me, looking around for anything suspicious. I noticed some very large footprints on the ground along with some blood stains leading into the woods. The footprints belong to what many people call Bigfoot, even though it's not like any Bigfoot I've ever seen. It was one of the really big ones. This couldn't have possibly been a bear, I didn't see any of the claw marks or teeth marks anywhere. But, more importantly, just the massive size of the footprints alone were startling. 
I got the call on the radio for backup, but nobody was answering me. I thought maybe they were busy with something else that must have been preventing them from helping. Then, I heard a scream off in the distance. It sounded like there were people yelling for help over at another campsite. At this point, I cannot wait any longer. I sent somebody back to their car to get a rifle while I continued on down the path leading into the forest with blood. When I made it to where the screaming was coming from, what I saw will never leave my memory. Whatever I was looking at had to have come from hell. It had three eyes and looked almost like a human but covered in nasty hair. I can't really describe it to you, but I've never seen anything like this before in my life. There was a family who were having a camping trip with their kids, and now they were all gone. The creature had taken all of them. I decided to shoot at it quickly, but I know my bullets would not even slow it down. Whatever this thing was, it could not be killed by normal means. I don't usually talk about my job around other people, but how could I not tell people about what I saw? At least those willing to listen. It was easily one of the most terrifying things I've ever experienced in my entire life. After that day, there were not many reports of unexplainable events happening around these campsites. It's almost as if they kept it as nothing happened at all. I was told to stop patrolling this area after I saw what it did, not because I'm afraid of this creature, but it's just because of what happened. I'm told that I need to keep very quiet about these things, and if I speak up, well, more than my career will be on the line. My husband, myself and our 11-month-old baby were spending the weekend at the Oregon coast. We stayed one night and on the second day decided to just watch the sunset and head back home to Hood River after we ate dinner. It was pretty late by the time we reached Multnomah Falls exit and my husband needed to take a break from driving to get some fresh air. We pulled into the parking lot and there were no other cars at all. We parked our vehicle at the west end of the lower parking lot. Our baby was sleeping in the back seat and he and I got out of the vehicle to stretch our legs and get some air. It was a pleasantly warm evening and very clear out. Just a few minutes had passed when all of a sudden we heard noise coming from the east end of the lot. We both looked and saw a very large, tall creature coming out of the tunnel where during the day people are walking in and out of constantly. It had to duck down to come through and seemed a bit irritated to have to do so. It came out of the tunnel and stood up tall pivoting to the west and headed our direction. During this entire ordeal, my husband, now X, and I never spoke a word. Our voices fell silent as we both watched this thing head our way. As it came closer my mind tried to decide what it was. It clearly was not a human, too tall to be that. It was not a bear as its arms were long and actually hung to around its knees at a full stand. It was not a gorilla as it walked like a human and was too big to be a gorilla. Process of elimination led me to the only logical conclusion. It was Bigfoot. Without a doubt. It was dead silent. You could have heard a pin drop. Wouldn't rational people jump into their vehicle, where their precious child was sleeping and take the hell off? Well, to this day, I can't explain the fact that we both seemed frozen on our feet and could not move or speak. At this time I recall there was no fear. Absolutely none. Anyway, it approached and as it walked by us, 
About 20 feet from where we stood, it stopped for just a moment, acknowledged us by turning its head to look and made a sound, and a slightly irritated wave of its right arm. It then quickly lost interest and continued on its way heading west in the parking lot. We watched in silence as this huge and obviously dark and hairy creature walked up to a cement wall, firmly planted its hands on the wall and oh so quickly swept its feet and legs right on through as it vanished into the dense forest beyond. Then it was gone. This entire incident lasted only minutes I am sure, but living it seemed to be in slow motion. Once the creature hopped the wall my husband and I finally looked at each other wide-eyed. All that he said at that moment was let's get the hell out of here as we got into our vehicle and took off. It wasn't until this moment that I felt physical fear. I began to tremble uncontrollably. My heart was racing at what we had just witnessed. We drove still in silence for a few minutes and then it seemed that we both at the same moment said to each other did you see what I just saw? It was as if we had to confirm it with the other because it was so unbelievable. Yes, we had indeed both seen the same thing, thank God. No one would believe this story. He believed me, and I believed him. He also told me that he had no fear until it was gone, just like me. Not once did we feel threatened by it, though it seemed a bit irritated by something or did we fear for our sleeping baby in the back seat. Figure that one out. That's my story. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for giving me a chance to share it. It was 2014, and I was 8 years old. I don't remember the exact month, but I'm pretty sure it was December. Strange things had happened in the house in the previous days, strange shadows and continuous nightmares while I slept, which is why I always slept with my mother that year. I don't remember the exact date it happened. However, that evening my father was working the night shift so my mother and I were home alone. My mother was sleeping next to me and I woke her up telling her there was something in the corridor because I heard noises. She said it was just the wind, and turned back to sleep. I couldn't sleep, and after the umpteenth noise I opened my eyes. In front of me, to the side and in front of the cot where my mother slept, was a grey figure with thin legs and thin arms. It held up one arm to indicate something, with the hand parallel to my mother's face, which was turned onto the back of the bed. I closed my eyes hoping it was a nightmare. Then I opened them again, and it was still there. Lying in bed, it seemed to reach up to the door handle, which is next to my bed, so it was not higher than 60 to 70 centimeter. Perhaps it really was taller, and it was because of the perspective that it seemed short to me. At that point I closed my eyes, and now that I think about it, stupidly enough, I reached out to try and feel that thing. I wanted to see if it was real, or if I was dreaming. My hand touched something sharp and cold, and I spun around closing my eyes. I don't know if what I touched was the thing or the metal frame of the cot, but I think it was the frame. A few minutes later I turned around and opened the thing was gone, so I figured it was all a dream, and then decided to sleep. Suddenly, inches from my nose, a round, grey thing appears in front of the headboard. I start to scream, but no sound comes out of my mouth, so I blink, and the round thing is gone. I try to fall back asleep and succeed, but I don't know if I was abducted afterwards or if it was all a figment of my imagination. 
After that, still in that period, end of 2014 beginning of 2015, when I was trying to fall asleep, I remember that my father was also in the house. I heard a voice saying ah. Food. I never understood what it was. Over the years I've thought several times that it was my father who watched something on the phone before falling asleep. However, I couldn't close my eyes all night. Three other similar cases have occurred. Once I saw a dark shadow breathing heavily beyond the door that separates the living room and the corridor, which is made of opaque glass. Another happened the following year, when I was changing in my room and I heard a growl from the corridor. I immediately closed the bedroom door without reopening it until my parents arrived. The last one happened two years ago after I fought with my father. While I was alone in the room, I jokingly said aliens, can't you kidnap him for a few days? And I received a hoarse and disturbing no. As an answer. I still remember it like it was yesterday. I didn't just see shadows. Three years ago, in August, while I was in the courtyard, at about four in the afternoon, I saw a gray figure materializing out of nowhere. The figure trudged a few steps in wide strides before disappearing after stepping onto the first step to ascend up to the house. It was slightly shorter than a person, with long arms and legs. I remember it had four fingers, and it stared at me before vanishing. I will never forget that look. A white-toothed smile and almond eyes. My folks were next to me looking in the same direction, but they saw nothing. When I told them what I had seen they said it was just a trick of the lights. I also was touched, and perhaps about to be kidnapped. At the age of 10, something grabbed my head and dragged me out of bed. I woke up screaming and putting my hands on my head. I had time to touch a pair of wrinkled hands before my parents woke up, and the hands let me go. My parents came to see what had happened finding me on the floor groggy. They told me it was just a nightmare, but I'm sure it wasn't. I had the last experience last August, on a Wednesday, at midnight or noon. I watched Netflix on my computer while playing games on my phone. The light from the computer quickly illuminated a hand seemingly connected to nothingness trying to touch me just above my left knee. Without telling my, sleeping, parents and without shouting, I turned on the lights immediately, but whatever it was was gone. My mother had similar experiences to the first I related to. Once she saw a short, huge-headed humanoid figure spying on her and my uncle from the front door to their bedroom. The second time a similar figure spying on her from behind a radiator, on the corner on the way to my grandma's sister's house, which is attached to my grandma's by a corridor full of windows. He never told me when the second happened but the first happened at night. Another thing about my mom is that she always sees a black figure before a family member dies. She says it's death, and I believe her. He saw her before my great-grandfather passed away, then before my great-grandmother passed away, and last time in 2021, at the end of May, about a week before my grandfather died of a heart attack. My grandmother and her sister also had weird experiences. Shortly after my grandfather's death, from the corridor going to my grandmother's sister's house, for a few nights, they saw a bright red dot floating in the sky. It rose above the horizon, moving up to the chimney of the house closest to them, to then rise into the sky and disappearing over my grandmother's house. I don't know why they never took pictures. 
They say it was a drone or a Chinese lantern, but I don't think a Chinese lantern takes the exact same route some nights in a row. Maybe it really was a drone though, but not having seen it, and the two of them not being very adept at identifying modern technology, I can't be sure. My grandmother's sister had the last experience I want to tell you about back in 1960. She never told me the exact year or month. At the time she was still living in Olgiate Camasco, Italy, the birthplace of my mother's maternal branch, with my great-grandmother. She was coming home from work, and night had just fallen. To get home from where he worked at the time, she usually passed through a wood that has now been replaced by a few houses. On the dirt road he punctured a wheel on the bike he usually used to travel there. A few minutes after she started shuffling behind her bike she saw lights in a clearing, and never scared easily she approached. A similar event had also happened a few days earlier, but it was explained as the lights of a demonstration or a discotheque that opened in a small village near his home, whose name I don't recall and I don't know if it still exists. What he found in the clearing, however, was a series of stationary lights within which other series of lights spun in opposite directions. These lights then suddenly turned off. When she got home, my great-grandmother asked why it had taken so long. My grandmother's sister, looking at the watch on her wrist, saw it was 11.30 p.m. This is when she normally gets home around 9 p.m. She told my great-grandmother everything, but I don't know what happened next. She never wanted to know what had happened to her. Near where my grandmother and my grandmother's sister grew up is Lake Como, Italy, and several times they have seen what they call heat lightning, basically ball lightning, and they said that the red ball they saw wasn't a ball lightning because it lasted too long and was always the same, and my aunt said it's impossible for so many and as big as the lights she had seen in the 60s to form. I live in the suburbs of Abbiatagrasso, province of Milan, Italy. This is located just next to the Ticino Triangle, perhaps the hot spot with the most UFO sightings in northern Italy. Nearby are the Camerai military base and the state powder magazine in Rimondo. So, I don't typically believe in this kind of stuff, but I had a very strange encounter a while back. I told my co-workers about it, and they insisted I had seen a rake? I've been researching since I had no idea what it was. It looks very similar to what I saw, except it's a fictional creature from a creepypasta? Just learned about that too, so I'm not sure what I saw. Anyway, I was driving home from work about a month or so ago and headed down this typically busy side street in Douglas County, Colorado, called Havana. It's close to Centennial Airport, in a business district, surrounded by apartments. It was about 1.30 a.m. and there wasn't much traffic, just a jeep in front of me. As I drove around a bend in the road, where Dry Creek turns into Havana, I saw in my peripheral vision a figure to my right on the sidewalk standing between two small trees held up by wire supports. The creature stood kind of behind them. At first glance, I figured it was just a tall, slender dog, like a white greyhound or Great Dane. It escaped and seemed to bark at traffic on the sidewalk. I was traveling about 45 miles per hour when I passed, and it was dark out. But I noticed as I passed by, that it appeared to have a humanoid-shaped head with black eyes. 
It also had a bent over hunched back, long slender legs, and an unusually wide mouth, like it was screaming or something. I thought to myself, yo, what was that? So I slowed down quickly to look back, and in my mirror, I saw the creature turn around and run off towards a fence or brick retaining wall on the other side of the sidewalk. But as it ran off, I saw how tall and slender the creature was. It seemed very pale, almost gray, with anorexic and bony appearance. It also moved strangely, where its hind leg joints were inverted and bent in the opposite direction from its front legs. At that point, I was seriously creeped out. The jeep in front of me had also slowed down, so I could only assume they saw it, too. We both continued driving as it was late or early and couldn't stop in the middle of a busy road. However, that situation really made my skin crawl. I checked my mirrors for the rest of the drive home. I debated if I should have called a non-emergency line to have an officer check it out, but I told myself they would think I was an idiot. Now, every night when I take that road, I look around to see if I can spot it again. I really want to believe it was just a dog. However, I can't stop thinking about how strange and quickly it moved with its backwards knees and how long or wide its mouth stretched. I haven't talked about this much except to some family and my co-workers because, frankly, it sounds ridiculous. I'm wondering what I saw? And if it's something I should talk about? Or should I pretend I never saw anything and move on with my life? My mom told me a story about my grandfather that you might find interesting. My grandfather was born in Mexico in the 1920s but grew up in Los Angeles. He was a World War II vet or Purple Heart recipient and deeply religious. So much that he built a large altar in his living room, where he could kneel and pray each day, complete with statues of the Virgin Mary and Jesus and candles, incense, etc. When I was a kid I thought this was a normal thing in all grandparents' houses. Because my grandfather was so religious that he basically never lied, from what I'm told, due to his deep faith. Well apparently, when he was younger in his 20s I believe, and perhaps less devout, he and a friend of his were driving and saw an attractive young woman walking down the street. They only saw her from behind and apparently drove up next to her to call out to her. But when she turned around she had a horse's face. Like a real horse's head or face. They allegedly screamed and hit the gas and drove off. As I was told, it was one of the events he personally witnessed that led him to be so religious. I once saw a goat man. I will never forget his two half-inch long teeth and the way he spoke. It was at a concert at Pine Knob in Michigan. I was walking through the crowd and I heard a voice nearby that sounded unnatural, and was just wrong. I turned my head and saw him 8, 10 feet away. It was the most surreal experience I've had. Especially because nobody else noticed or was bothered by this thing. In the vast expanse of Yellowstone National Park, I found myself embarking on an expedition with a group of scientists to uncover its hidden mysteries. Armed with state-of-the-art equipment and driven by my insatiable curiosity, I eagerly ventured into the heart of the wilderness, oblivious to the horrors that lay ahead. 
As a geologist, I had always been captivated by the park's geological wonders. Little did I know that my passion for discovery would soon transform into a nightmarish ordeal. During our exploration, we stumbled upon a concealed cave that had remained untouched for centuries. Inside, we discovered peculiar markings etched on the walls, symbols that defied any explanation we could muster. The air in the cave was laden with an unsettling presence, sending shivers down my spine. Despite the growing unease among my colleagues, I couldn't resist my scientific curiosity and insisted on delving deeper into the cave. With each step, the atmosphere became heavier, and the temperature seemed to plummet inexplicably. Bizarre noises echoed through the narrow passages, and the very walls seemed to pulsate with an ominous energy. As we pressed on, the markings on the cave walls began to convey a chilling tale, a story of an ancient and malevolent entity that had been trapped within its confines for centuries. Initially, we dismissed it as local folklore, attributing the stories to the imaginative tales of tribes in the area. However, as the days passed, our skepticism waned, replaced by an overwhelming sense of dread. Strange occurrences started to plague our team. Vivid nightmares invaded our sleep, and eerie whispers seemed to echo in our ears, even when no one was speaking. Deep within the cave, the unsettling phenomena intensified. Our scientific equipment malfunctioned, and the walls seemed to pulse with an inexplicable malevolence. I struggled to maintain my rationality, but the events unfolding before us defied all logical explanations. One harrowing night, as we gathered around a campfire, the malevolence in the cave peaked. It felt as if the very walls were closing in on us, and an overwhelming darkness enveloped the atmosphere. Suddenly, a blood-curdling scream pierced the air, and one of our team members vanished into thin air, leaving us stunned and terrified. Fear gripped us, and we knew we had to escape the clutches of the cave. Yet, the malevolent entity was relentless, toying with our minds and exploiting our deepest fears and regrets. Hallucinations and delusions haunted us, making it impossible to distinguish reality from nightmare. With each passing day, our group fractured as each scientist sought their own means of escape from this living nightmare. Guilt weighed heavily on my shoulders, for it was I who had led us into this forsaken place. I became consumed by the need to decipher the ancient symbols, hoping to find a way to banish the malevolent presence once and for all. But the entity was cunning, and it preyed upon my desperation. Whispers crept into my mind, promising knowledge and power beyond comprehension all in exchange for my soul. I teetered on the brink of madness, torn between my scientific mind and the allure of forbidden knowledge. In a moment of desperation, I made a decision that would seal my fate. Driven by the desire to save my team and uncover the secrets of the cave, I made a pact with the ancient entity. In that haunting moment, darkness consumed me, and I became one with the malevolence that had haunted the cave for centuries. The rest of the team, now fractured and traumatized, finally managed to escape the cave's clutches. Yet, we carried the horrors we had witnessed with us, haunted by the knowledge that something ancient and evil now roamed the wilds of Yellowstone National Park. Years passed, and the cave remained undisturbed, its secrets locked away from the world. My name, Dr. Emily Carter, became a whispered cautionary tale among the scientific community, 
a stark reminder of the perils of pursuing forbidden knowledge. But deep within the cave, the malevolent presence still stirred, biding its time, waiting for the day it could break free from its ancient prison and unleash its horrors upon the world once more. And so, the tale of Yellowstone's hidden horrors endures, a chilling reminder of the darkness that lurks beneath the surface, waiting to ensnare the foolhardy and the curious alike. In late August, 1986 or possibly 87, I'm not sure which, I drove four friends up from Portland to the south side of Mount Hood to spend three days on the trail that goes round the mountain. We were all 17 or so and there were two other couples and myself. On the second day we had made it only to the east side of the mountain going clockwise, I think it was called Sherwood Camp. We found the campsite late and decided to set up on our own near a creek on the opposite side of the trail from the campground sign. A hundred yards or so off the trail in a fairly level open part of the forest. There was a creek nearby, there were huckleberries out and we set up our three tents close together. The next morning I got up about 5.30 but noticed from my tent flap the others had all slept in. Some movement about 70 feet away in the berry bushes and evergreens caught my eye. I saw a large light beige colored creature all covered with hair 7 to 8 feet tall. It's back to me, trying to reach something, a branch I get. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Yes about 15 feet. Off the ground. Not more than 10 feet away was this other creature the same but small, all covered with hair except for the front of the hands, 
the bottoms of the feet and around the eyes. The second one was only about three feet high and was bending over picking up a stick which it was trying to put in its mouth. The little one was a bit darker in color, a dark beige. The hair on both was up to four inches long at most. The big one was really thick set, I could not make out any of the front of the hands. The bottoms of the feet and around the eyes. The second one was only about three feet high and was bending over picking up a stick which it was trying to put in its mouth. The little one was a bit darker in color, a dark beige. The hair on both was up to four inches long at most. The big one was really thick set, I could not make out any of the front of her because she was turned away from me almost the whole time, about a minute. I thought she was the little one's mother. She gave a kind of grunt at the little one like she didn't want him doing that and he dropped the stick. At that moment I was on all fours leaning out of the tent, trying to see better, and my hand popped on a twig, and the big one looked right at me, but all she did for a second was grunt again at the little one and she reached down, stepped over and took his hand. It was like she was motioning for him to go with her, and looked in my direction one more time, grunted softly again and they were gone behind the trees. Their faces were like an ape around the lips and jaws, you know, their jaws jutted out a bit. Their heads weren't pointed but I could see by the bare patches around the eyes and skin on the hands their skin was a kind of brownish gray. My friends never saw anything, but after we hitchhiked back to the jeep and were on the way out, I slowed down for a ranger and he stopped to make sure we were okay. He was an older guy, I didn't get his name, he had gray hair and a bit of a paunch. He was a nice guy, he said this was his first season doing this, and when I told him what I had seen his eyebrows kind of went up. I didn't report this to anybody else. When I asked for other details Kay added, well when she walked away she sort of waddled from side to side a bit. When I asked her about smell she replied nothing that I could tell. Did you look for tracks? No, I was a little scared, we just all got up and packed up after breakfast and I didn't even want to go over there. All in all it was a kind of scary but really fascinating thing, the whole thing couldn't have taken more than a minute, a minute and a half at most, but it seemed like five. The details really stuck in my mind. Kay told me there had been no alcohol or drugs and was sure of what she had seen. She said her friends died some time after that in a car crash but that that ranger might remember. My older brother Mark disappeared when I was just seven. The last memory I have of him comes from a lazy Saturday afternoon in the summer of 2008. He was on our backyard porch with a bunch of his high school friends, eating ice cream cones and arguing about horror movies or something. I don't know. I never paid much attention to their conversations. But I do remember they were excited about going to their first real party later that night. I came outside to give Mark a gift, a charm bracelet I'd made for him from a series of strung-together Lego blocks. For good luck, I told him. Mark looked at the bracelet. I'd scrawled letters on it in Sharpie, one letter per block. Together, they spelled out Mookie, my nickname for him since I was a toddler. Mark just laughed and pocketed the bracelet. Thanks smelly Ellie, he said, tousling my curly hair. I remember yelling at him and growing red-faced. Then I ran back inside. Don't call me that, I yelled. 
Those were the last words I said to my brother. Mark and his friends were headed to the swamp soiree that night, a tradition at Bartram Forest High School. Each year, a group of popular seniors would throw a big end of the summer bash on the outskirts of the Okegobe Swamp, a massive wilderness area in North Florida, about an hour from our home in suburban Jacksonville. The soiree was basically a big kegger with a bonfire where everyone got drunk, smoked pot and hooked up in their cars or, if they were really wasted, in the mud. The area was remote enough that no police ever came by and there were no locals to piss off. The party's exact location was kept secret, shared only to those fortunate enough to be invited. Swamp soirees were known for their lethal amounts of alcohol and drugs. The kids who threw them always came from wealthy families. They brought multiple kegs of Blue Moon or Stella, handles of top-shelf liquor, bags of dank-ass weed and occasionally, cocaine. Mark and his friends arrived early that night, before most others had shown up. According to his friends, some douchey baseball players pressured him into doing a 20-second keg stand. Shortly afterwards, Mark told his friends he was going to take a piss. He looked pale and sweaty. Like he was going to throw up, his friend Eric told me years later. The last time anyone saw him, Mark was stumbling around in the darkened woods, headed deeper into the Okigobi swamp. Two hours later, his friends drunkenly searched the same wilderness, calling out his name while sinking halfway into the mud. Two days later, my parents searched the area with local law enforcement. Two weeks later, a 400-person search and rescue operation combed the Okigobi swamp, equipped with helicopters, John boats, and multiple foot teams. And two years later, the final official search ended, this time with cadaver dogs. No one ever found anything. It was like Mark had vanished from existence entirely. One moment there was a smart, sci-fi obsessed teenager who wanted to design robots that explored distant planets, get married and raise three, five kids while living in Miami. And the next moment. Nothing. I never participated in an official search for my brother. I was too young. But years later, when I was in college at Florida State, I applied for a summer internship at the Okigobi National Park, in part to look for anything that might have been missed. I'd always been interested in the wilderness, even though my parents never let me go camping or hiking after what happened. They wouldn't even let me play in the woods of our backyard. But that only made me long for such places even more. Mark loved being outdoors. Being in the wild was one of the only ways to keep his spirit alive. One of my earliest memories was of us hiking together on the trails at Guana River State Park. We'd run out ahead of our parents, till it was just us in a wide green world full of sprawling oaks, wide marshes and endless mystery. As kids we fantasized about running away to live in the woods, like a modern-day version of Swiss Family Robinson. We'd never have to go to school. We could stay up as late as we wanted. It would be total freedom. When I went in for my interview at the Okigobi Park headquarters, the head interp ranger George Craig saw my last name and raised his eyebrows. Ellie Brooks? I'm the little sister of Mark Brooks, I said, answering the question that was forming in his bald head. I helped lead the first search party for him, he explained. Really sad. I'm very sorry for your loss. Thanks. 
I told him I was using the internship as a way of coping with his loss. He hired me on the spot. The job was simple enough. Most of it consisted of manning the park museum or gift shop and talking to visitors. They would come in to browse the dioramas on swamp wildlife or peruse books on birdwatching. The park received visitors from all over the country, but most were locals from the nearby town of Akoni, Pop. 604. They were usually older folks who were retired, stopping by day after day just to talk. These locals had all sorts of crazy stories about the Okigobi Swamp. It turned out Akoni was known for two things, its massive paper mill, which gives the area a noxious fart smell when the wind blows north to south, and its town mascot, the infamous Swamp Rex. Akoni sits along the eastern edge of the Okigobi Swamp. It's the only human civilization within 50 miles of the wilderness. As such, the town has experienced many unusual animal encounters over the years. Everyone who's ever owned a swimming pool there found a full-grown alligator floating in it at least once. Water moccasins sometimes coiled up on the town's roads to catch warmth in the winter. And locals love to say how the deer population vastly outnumbered the human one. But not all creatures could be explained. Since as far back as 1889, People in the area talked of an eight-foot-tall humanoid alligator that roamed the swamp at night, killing anyone who littered, polluted, or otherwise disrespected the natural ecosystem. They called it the Swamp Rex. Most reports stated the creature had glowing green eyes, a long, powerful tail that could break bone and an elongated head full of spear-like crocodilian teeth. The Swamp Rex would hunt at night then returned to its mud hole somewhere deep inside the swamp where no one feared to tread. I first learned of the swamp wrecks from my older brother. As a child, Mark was fascinated with cryptozoology, the study of unverified creatures like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. He used to tell me campfire stories about the wrecks when we were little, how it was millions of years old and would travel throughout the swamp via a series of underwater caves. The stories scared the bejesus out of me, but I loved every second of them. He told me once that he wanted to go on an expedition into the heart of the Okigobi to find the creature. I was the only other person who wanted to go with him. It sounded like the perfect adventure, like something out of my favorite movie, Jurassic Park. Mark and I never went on that expedition. He lost interest in stupid fake monsters by the time he was a senior in high school. I doubt the Rex was even on his mind when he attended the Swamp Soiree that fateful night. Mark never saw the Swamp Rex, but many others have claimed to have seen it over the years. Even though the legend dated back to newspaper articles in the late 1800s, it didn't really become known until March 1989, when Oconee sugarcane farmer Bill Howard noticed a tall man wandering the edge of his property late one autumn evening. Howard lived on a remote farm on the outskirts of town, right next to the Okigobi Swamp. If it was a man, he'd have to walk miles through mighty thick woods to get to my backyard, Howard told reporters. Keeping his eyes on the figure, the farmer grabbed his 12-gauge shotgun and a camcorder he'd recently got for Christmas. I knew right away something wasn't right about it. It stood like a man, but it had this big tail and it moved with a kinda animal grace, he said. Instead of aiming his gun, Howard raised his camcorder and shot the first known footage of the swamp wrecks.
The creature only appeared for five seconds on screen before fleeing deeper into the woods. It was somewhat hard to make out, given the footage was shot from a hundred yards away and during twilight. But even with the low-resolution 1980s era camera, people could see the figure had a tail and an elongated head, just like the Swamp Rex stories of old. Soon afterwards, Bill Howard's footage aired on the local news and, gradually, spread throughout the country via cryptozoological outlets like the weekly World News and nascent internet forums on the paranormal. Eventually, the creature made its way into greater pop culture. In the 1990s, The X-Files aired a Monster of the Week episode loosely based on the Rex and the History Channel did a special on it for its Monster Quest series in 2009. Over time, tourists started showing up in Oconee, hoping to catch a glimpse of the creature themselves. Various gift shops opened, selling all kinds of Swamp Rex merchandise, from t-shirts to mugs to alligator hats, even Swamp Rex up a beer. People came from all over the country. Most were skeptics just looking for another wacky Florida story to tell. But some were true believers. Many even believed the Rex was involved in real-life disappearances tied to the Okigobi area. Since 1980, over 50 people have gone missing in or around the swamp, including my older brother. The most famous case happened in the early 1990s when a wealthy land developer named Jerry Flagler vanished after witnesses last saw him in the Okigobi area with some business partners. He was going to illegally cut down them trees, Akoni's town historian Mary Madrigal told reporters. But the Rex took him before he could. Like Mark, the authorities never found Flagler's body. By 2019, When I was working at the Okigobi National Park, the Swamp Rex had become a vital part of Akoni lore. A cartoon version of it was even featured on the town sign. Though they didn't know my relation, many of the locals who visited the park would tell me stories about what really happened to Mark Brooks. Most of them believed the Swamp Rex took my brother because he was disrespecting the land by being at the Swamp Soiree. How come it didn't take anyone else then? I would ask innocently. There were at least a hundred other kids at the party on the night of Mark's disappearance. The locals usually didn't have an answer to that question. Or they'd make up some bullshit excuse like well. Maybe he was the only one littering. The only drunken high school student who littered? Sure. My brother was officially pronounced dead on January 12, 2012. His cause of death was listed as probable drowning the only theory which seemed reasonable. The area where Mark was last seen had a lot of deep pools of water connected to the Akoni River. Given his level of inebriation at the time, it was easy to assume he'd simply fallen into one such pool, Mark never learned how to swim, and then his body was later washed out to sea via the river, which runs from the Okigobi Swamp to the Gulf of Mexico. Even though I didn't believe the Swamp Rex theory, Like Mark before me, I'd come to a realization that the monsters were always a hoax or a case of mistaken identity, I still couldn't quite live with a drowning explanation. I needed something more. Another part of my job was something called roving, where I walked the trails and boardwalks of the Okigobi National Park, talking to visitors and looking for anything suspect. I did this a few times a week. I didn't carry a firearm. That was for law enforcement. La, rangers only, 
Not in Terp ones and definitely not someone doing a college internship. But I did have a high-powered radio that could contact and lie in case of emergencies. And I always wore a flat hat, something you've probably seen from many Smokey the Bear ads, so hikers could spot me a mile away. Sometimes they asked about wildlife and the history of the swamp. Most of the time they came to complain about the lack of certain facilities, like trash cans. I roved the wilderness of the Okigobi Swamp for one reason. I was determined to find something, anything. Any remnant of my brother's existence. Even if it was just the stupid charm bracelet I'd given him the day he disappeared. I knew all the search parties before me had covered the same ground, but there were still plenty of stories of someone finding clues in the exact same location people had searched years earlier. It was possible. It had to be possible. A few months into my job, I was roving the north boardwalk when I saw something out of the corner of my eye. A flash of movement. It looked like a lanky teenager. The figure dashed into the surrounding cypress trees, disappearing in an area that was usually flooded. I half expected the runaway to sink waist deep in mud, but this was late March and it hadn't rained in a month. The land was as dry as it would get and the mysterious individual had moved expertly through it. I reached for my radio, planning to call in the incident. Someone's gone off the designated trail, I would have said. In most situations, this is something a Ranger would handle. But something made me put the radio down. A lingering feeling. That kid. Was it a boy? He almost looked. Mark. I should have taken it as a warning sign. I wish I'd just radioed the LE Ranger. Instead, I stepped off the boardwalk and started into the woods. There was nothing in the area where the figure was headed. My NPS map just showed a blank spot on the northern edge of the swamp. Because of its extreme density and uninhabitable terrain, almost half of the Okigobi is uncharted. Most of its land is hidden beneath 4 feet of murky brown water and another 5 feet of black muck, too difficult to walk through for a detailed survey. I looked for the kid in the cypress trees ahead, but couldn't see any movement. I did see the occasional shoe print in the mud however. It looked like a converse shoe. Definitely not something you'd want in such terrain. The intermittent tracks led deeper and deeper into the swamp. I came across one every 10 to 20 yards. At one point, I stopped to take a drink from my Nalgene bottle and was shocked to see a full two hours had passed. It was almost 5 p.m. Shit. I was supposed to be back at the park headquarters to start closing procedures 30 minutes ago. How was it already 5? It felt like I'd stepped off the boardwalk only moments before. I started to backtrack. I planned to let an LE know about the lost kid, but first. I needed an excuse for being so late. Was I helping a lost hiker find his way back to the trailhead? Did I have to clean up a bunch of trash on the boardwalk? I was about to radio headquarters when I felt my boots slip out from under me and I tumbled down a small muddy hill, my body crashing through a dense thicket of palmetto bushes. Dazed, I struggled to my feet, wiping off as much dirt as I could. My green slacks and grey collared shirt had turned black from muck. My flat hat was crushed. My radio was cracked and unusable. And my cell phone was caked in mud. But as soon as I saw my surroundings, I forgot about everything else. 
I was inside a campsite, almost an acre in size. The place was astonishing. It had an old canvas tent, pitched beneath a sprawling live oak, a fire pit, a small garden, a compost station, a dugout latrine, even a plastic tarp for catching rainwater. A series of large ceramic jars stood by the rain catcher. They looked to be storing water. There was no one around. The tent was empty, but I could tell the site was still inhabited. Everything was well maintained and the fire pit had some recently burned coals in its center. Who could be living here, I wondered. Was it the boy I was chasing? Was he hiding in the bushes somewhere nearby, afraid of getting caught? No. Whoever had been living at the site had been there for years. Perhaps even decades. The camp was surrounded by dense palmetto bushes and a makeshift wall of driftwood. It was so well camouflaged that I realized I had already walked past it before falling down the hill. Hello? I said, tentatively. There was no response. Cicadas droned from the nearby trees. I was about to leave when something along the far edge of camp caught my attention. It appeared to be a crude statue carved out of an old tree trunk and decorated with various objects. As I approached, its details came into focus. The statue depicted a humanoid figure with an alligator's head and a long, muscular tail, clearly meant to be the swamp rex. There were various objects around it. Some had been laid at the creature's feet, a moldy tennis shoe, a broken compass, part of a child's lunchbox. Others were draped over its body, a baseball cap, a canteen, a golden necklace bearing a cross. They were arrayed in a specific pattern, as if the statue was some kind of a shrine. I crept closer, almost mesmerized by the mysterious display. And that's when I saw it. A bracelet, made of Lego blocks, hanging around the statue's left wrist. My breath stopped. All noise faded. I reached out and grabbed the bracelet. The letters were faint, but still legible. M-O-O-K-I-E. This was the very bracelet I'd given my older brother the day he disappeared. My skin felt prickly with fear and worry. I put the bracelet in my vest pocket, then turned around, looking in all directions. Mark? There was no response. The campsite was perfectly still. My eyes scanned the tent, the garden, the compost heap, the latrine, the, a male figure, hidden in shadow, standing at the edge of the woods. Motionless. I gasped. How long had he been there? It was too dark to make out the man's features. Could it be? Mark? Somehow, I already knew the answer. There was a loud hiss. Then, very slowly, the figure stepped into the light, a six-foot-tall man, mid to late fifties, with a muscular frame and scraggly gray hair. A hermit. His wiry body was covered in dirt, mud and bug bites. And he was completely naked. The hermit stared at me with bloodshot eyes, his expression unreadable. Angry? Scared? Confused? My stomach wrenched with fear. Every alarm bell in my brain was ringing simultaneously. S, so sorry sorry, I stammered, backing away with my hands up. I didn't mean to. I can leave. The hermit opened his cracked lips to reveal rotten, yellowed teeth. He hissed, producing a noise so low and resonant it sounded like a giant snake. I jumped back, 
falling on my behind at the foot of the shrine. No, please. But the hermit didn't attack. Instead, he grabbed something from within the tent. Something big. It looked like a pile of clothes. When he brought it out I nearly screamed. It was a suit made of thick reptilian skin. The hermit had stitched together pieces of alligator hide to form a swamp rex costume. It had long sleeves that ended in clawed gloves, a hood made from a gator skull, webbed feet, even a tail. The monster suit was ugly as sin but also intricate, terrifying, mesmerizing. The hermit started to put it on. His movements were slow and deliberate, like this was all part of some sort of ritual. What, what are you? I crawled backwards, keeping my eyes on him the whole time. My fingers brushed against a piece of driftwood, a potential weapon? The hermit stepped forward, wearing his swamp wreck suit. He looked like a mutant from the bowels of hell. The man hissed again, his voice amplified by the gator skull. It was louder, more guttural. I grabbed hold of the driftwood piece and stood up. The branch was small, but solid, like a billy club. I raised it up defensively, and Mark's bracelet fell from my vest pocket. The hermit stared at the bracelet and hissed again. He took a step back. Cautiously, I picked up the bracelet with my free hand and held it out so the hermit could see it more clearly. It hung loosely from my fingertips. Where? Where did you get this? No response. Do you know Mark Brooks? I asked, trying to sound a bit more confident. With his gloved hand, the hermit pointed to the ceramic jars standing beneath the rain catcher. The ones that held water. I don't understand. Can you, can you speak? The hermit didn't say anything. He walked over to the jars, his reptilian hands brushing across the top of each one, until. He tipped the last jar over. Crash. A gallon of slimy liquid poured out, along with a pile of big white sticks. No. Not sticks. Bones. Inside the jar was a complete human skeleton, its bones all mashed together. OF, I stammered. This was his answer. I was looking at Mark, spilled across the ground like some carnivore's leftovers. No. No, no. Hiss. The hermit raised his gloved hands. His eyes shined within the gator skull. My whole body shook. Sweat poured down my face. This was it, the end. I had my answer, and I would pay the ultimate price for it. Until. I saw him, the boy who had run from the boardwalk so many hours ago. The one I'd been following. It was Mark, still 18 years old and wearing the same faded jeans and long sleeve shirt from the night he disappeared. He looked at me, then pointed at something lying against the tent, a shotgun. I threw the driftwood at the hermit as hard as I could. Then sprinted for the tent. Five feet, three, two, one. I grabbed the weapon with shaky hands. There was just enough time to turn, bang. Blood splattered my face. The blast threw the hermit backwards. His six-foot-tall body fell to the ground with a thud. It all happened so fast, I didn't even realize I'd pulled the trigger until afterwards. Smoke curled from the barrel of the shotgun. I let out a sharp cry that was half cough, half sob. The hermit lay motionless a few feet away. 
I pumped the shotgun a second time as I stepped towards him, finger still on the trigger. He never got up. Afterwards, I looked all over camp for my Mark's ghost, calling out his name. But aside from that split-second moment before the attack, I never saw my brother again. To this day, I wonder if I ever saw him at all. Perhaps it was all nerves. Perhaps my brother was just a manifestation of the my intense fear upon meeting the real swamp wrecks. Looking back, I'm struck by how similar the hermit's campsite was to the Swiss family Robinson-style home mark and I had imagined we'd live in when we were little. Aside from the obscene shrine and jars of course. The police cordoned off the entire site the next day. Aside from Mark, they found the remains of 12 other people, even wealthy land developer Jerry Flagler. News vans came from all over. Word of the Swamp Rex's discovery spread internationally. Most importantly, our family finally had a proper burial for my brother that provided some much-needed closure. My parents and I wept for weeks on end. So far, the police have not been able to identify the hermit, even after analyzing dental records, completing a DNA profile and sending his picture to various news outlets. There have been numerous theories of course. Some said the hermit was Michael Jenkins, an escaped mental patient who vanished from a South Florida asylum 40 years ago, though the photos didn't bear much resemblance. Others claimed various serial killers who had never been caught, like the Zodiac. Some even believed the hermit was planted by the federal government to cover up the existence of the real creature. But no one came forward with any solid evidence. Nothing verifiable. The hermit has remained as mysterious as the swamp creature he had pretended to be for so many years. I've since moved clear across the country. I currently reside in the vast metropolis of Los Angeles. I don't go hiking anymore. I never go camping. I hardly ever even leave the house. But each night I dream. I dream that I'm still deep in that swamp, alone in my cold, reptilian skin. I am the hermit. And the thing that worries me the most. I enjoy it. On August 14, 1986, I went for a morning walk at Cape Blanco Beach, like any other day. The cool ocean breeze brushed through my hair as I enjoyed the peacefulness of the early hours. Little did I know that this simple stroll would lead to a life-changing encounter. Approaching the north end of the beach, something unusual caught my eye, two large sets of side-by-side -side tracks in the soft sand. They were massive, at least 18 inches long, unlike anything I had ever seen before. Excitement and curiosity rushed through me as I wondered if these could be the legendary Bigfoot tracks. Determined to uncover the truth, I followed the tracks as they led away from the shore and into the dense forest bordering the beach. The tall trees cast shadows, and the rustling of leaves beneath my feet was the only sound. The fresh tracks confirmed I was on the trail of something extraordinary. Walking for two miles, my heart pounded with anticipation. The forest seemed to engulf me, creating an atmosphere of suspense and wonder. Despite the excitement, I couldn't shake a sense of unease, feeling like an intruder in this mysterious realm. Suddenly, the tracks vanished. There were no signs of where the creature might have gone. Disappointed yet determined, I searched the surrounding area for more clues but found nothing. 
It was as if the creature had disappeared into thin air. Feeling watched, I continued my search, driven by the desire to unravel the secrets hidden within the woods. Hours passed, and with the sun climbing higher in the sky, I reluctantly decided to turn back. Although I didn't find concrete evidence of Bigfoot's existence, the encounter left an indelible mark on my soul. This occurred in Oakland, California in November 2016 where my wife's parents live. There had been several shootings in the area, more than normal, and the funeral home on International Boulevard had been getting a lot of business. My in-laws were driving through Oakland at around 2 a.m. in the morning. My mother-in-law worked as a live and hospice nurse and only had a day or so off. She was coming back at 2 a.m. after having the evening off. While they were driving to her job, they saw a beautiful young woman standing on the corner next to the funeral home who was very well-dressed. They saw her at the corner while they were stopped at the intersection, and noticed that the woman smiled and then waved at them. They also noticed that her eyes were totally black. My in-laws were frightened and drove away as fast as they could. My father-in-law drops off my mother-in-law at her work and wonders if that ghost woman he saw at the corner will be there on the way back, he had to go through that same intersection. On his way back, she was still there at the corner, and this time he was stuck at the light at the intersection. She again waved to him and he noticed again she had black eyes. It seemed like she was trying to get him to come over and pick her up. Naturally when the light turned green, he sped out of that intersection to get home. No one seems to know who she is, but they all seem to agree that her funeral was probably through the funeral home there on that street. As to why she was on that street between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., I think she was looking for victims. <laughs>